With the ship sunk, Shackleton set himself just one goal, to save the lives of all his men. A year and four months after starting their journey, after five months adrift in an ice floe and seven days sailing in two small lifeboats, the boss, as his men called him, left the majority of his men on Elephant Island and set off with five crew members for South Georgia. In a boat measuring just seven meters, they traveled 200 kilometers across the most violent waters in the world and made it to the coast of the island. Their odyssey continued. Welcome one and all to another edition of Nick's Nonfiction. I am your host, comic Nick Munez. Today we break through winter's darkest hour together. No man left behind with a tale of survival through an icy hell. This is Endurance, the journey of Ernest Shackleton, days before the outbreak of World War I, Sir Ernest Shackleton, and two dozen men set sail for one of the final unclaimed prizes in human exploration. It was cold down there. These numb nuts, they were trying to traverse the entire continent of Antarctica on foot. And sure, two years earlier, some Norwegian translucent snow monster this guy went to the south pole and claimed it for their country first but antarctica was still a mystery and it is still quite a mystery to us today i do like to do some independent research on the two giant islands that are underneath antarctica's ice because it's a continent you know it's not all ice down there like north pole santa's just praying that it doesn't get too hot up there south pole's got a lot of mysteries you can't even go on google earth and look at it We'll do the Admiral Bird story, that book one day in the future. This one is just a tale of survival. This is in the heroic age of men going around the world and claiming, putting their flag down, like that 3D rendered image of China doing it on the moon. This particular version of the book today is not the Lansing account, I believe is the most famous one. We saw all the pictures, the negative of the endurance the ship is super famous this book is like a documentary written by caroline alexander i would suggest it as a read luckily i got it at a donation center it's probably like a 70 dollars coffee table book this thing has pictures from hurley the original photographer on the journey it is a once in a millennia survival tale dead in the middle of the winter here we're getting you through it hope you guys listen to your mom bring your jacket about the author caroline alexander she is a british author a classicist and a filmmaker also writ the best-selling book the bounty that one is about a 1787 royal navy expedition to the south pacific cataloging biology this was in the time of charles darwin and the discovery his ship they were just nabbing up animals from all around dissecting at will same time period heroic age robinson caruso remember that guy that was a tale of survival he um met friday on the island and then they built an elevator shaft out of leaves they were true engineers you know there's a indian guys on youtube making mud slides and underground dwellings out of dirt it's nicer than my apartment this is the real survival brain takes over when you're in these situations some of this author's other books include the way to zandu and the war that killed achilles 
in 2015, she published her own translation of Homer's Iliad. She was born to American parents in Florida, went to FSU her senior year as a history major, Florida State history major. What are you minoring in? Fellatio. She went to Oxford for her graduate, went to Malawi, South Central Africa doing work, and then returned to get her PhD at Columbia. Her National Geographic magazine cover story was named The Invisible War on the Brain, praised for blast-induced trauma research, taking modern soldiers and seeing what made them broke, why they get the shell shock sweats in the middle of the night, like the poor Vietnam vets every 4th of July. They just wanted to have a barbecue, and now you're simulating the raid of Hanoi. We got eight chapters today. This is Sir Shackleton's Journey. It's one of these Mark Kurlansker type of books. Salt, cod, he just takes one item and goes into the entire history of it. This is a great account of Shackleton's story. Chapter 1, The Heroic Age. A little backstory. In 1915, the most renowned polar explorer of the day was Sir Ernest Shackleton. He set his sails 74 degrees south on his track to reach Antarctica a thousand miles away. He cast off from a whaling station in the South Atlantic with nothing but ice ahead. Since the late 1914s, World War I just broke out its eventful time on the world. The ship, the Endurance he was riding on, was just chauffeuring around these whaling stations in the South Atlantic. I heavily suggest if you're at work, your boss could pay for you to do some research on the Southern Hemisphere. It's opposite seasons. This is a different world. If we have any Aussie listeners, go do an experiment. Record how your toilet flushes the opposite way. Send it in. Scroll around the globe down there. There's all these mountainous islands, snow-capped mountains seagulls making a tornado around it's a crazy part of the world this endurance ship was just testing its luck getting its endurance up down there in the arctic circle the endurance the ship actually had failed on that transarctic journey previously sir shackleton never made it to the south pole this heroic age started in 1901 when the Discovery first set sail for Antarctica, and that was Darwin's ship. He made it to the continent of South Africa, and he just nabbed up a couple penguins, and they raced out of there before they ran out of rations. And it's always been a sprint once you are beyond the ice shelf. The clock is ticking. In 1903, one of the shipmen of the Discovery went back, Robert Scott. And he bought a dog sled down there for the first time, covering more ground. Even fully equipped, this is more ground. He only made it one mile per hour. On the dog sleds, remember that movie Snow Dogs? Those things could cook it. No one was proficient on skis. The entire team that he took was why those friggin' Weegians were able to do so well. Scott was an ex-Navy officer, and he needed to test the ground before he was going to make his attack plan to get to the South Pole. Shackleton, our hero today, he was an ex-merchant marine, more of a do-as-you-please. He gave his men a lot of autonomy on the endurance. 1903 to 04, Scott and Shackleton, they were taking turns making sprints to the South Pole, and they would up each other by 10 miles each time, and none of them ever made it. 
1908, Shackleton attempted an excursion with Manchurian ponies. He tried to head down there with horses. All of them froze to death. Remember seeing The Revenant, that movie, how Leo finally got an Oscar? He was left in the woods to die, and he cattle jumps a bunch of horses off a cliff, and then he slices their guts open and sleeps in the middle. Shackleton did this in his 08 failure, and he said he got blocked by the Beardmore Glacier, a really big ice wall down in South Antarctica. This thing is the size of a mountain, and it has no footholds. There's no way to get a switchback trail up to the top, and it's a plateau. This is like Mordor. It's some otherworldly landscapes down there. And he tried for 36 hours to find a way around, had to sleep in the pony for a second night. wasn't as warm. Can't bring those ponies back down there. Everyone was thinking maybe we'd try camels to get to the South Pole. Same thing, you would need some, like, cold-blooded raptor to ride through the snow. Remember Star Wars? They were riding those dinosaurs on that snow planet. We could probably train some emus to do that, or we need a reverse engineer, a trilobite. <laughs> These things have survived nine mass extinction events. Those horseshoe crabs, they're terrifying. You flip them over, there's a million tiny legs trying to eat at your face. They're blue-blooded. Trilobites can't get diseases. They can't get a cold. They can't get an STD. <laughs> we could ride those babies for miles. A lot of failures went into these attempts, and obviously mammals are going to be your best bet. They go with the snow dogs. These guys, they never made it. Ronald Amundsen was the name of the Norwegian that made it to the South Pole in 1910, roughly 360 miles from his base camp on the coast. So he chose the best attack plan to get down there as well. His team, better on the skis, better with the dogs. They live in the North Pole Circle. They probably knew how to ride reindeers down to the bottom. He goes, all right, then I'm just going to traverse all of Antarctica in one go. That other guy, Scott, who was an underling for Darwin, he made it by 1911 to the South Pole. Nobody believed him. He didn't take any pictures. His team was five of the best men he knew, and he tried to recreate it in 1913 because everyone was calling him out. Why didn't you take any pictures, bro? Pixar, it didn't happen. <laughs> and they went in that 1913 one, six men, all of them died. So Amundsen made it. Scott is now dead trying to have made it. Shackleton, this is his polar journey. He's got to claim his prize. He raised 24,000 British pounds and combed through their entire school system to try to find the best dog sledders. Smart guys that could read the stars. Anybody who had a survival mentality. He posted in the Daily Chronicle. All of the pics in these books, absolutely. It, <laughs> it looks better than you pull up your Snapchat filter app, and it makes the world look animated. Somehow these black and white pictures look alive. The people looking into <laughs> The guy had to hold up an actual light bulb when taking the camera. Shackleton, he's got to make the trek. This circles us, Arctic circles us back to the August of 1914 Shackleton set in sail whaling station thousand miles south he's got to go the endurance is off chapter two south they spent two weeks loading supplies in Meira Portugal that's a tropic island in the mid-Atlantic 
Portugal's got all kind of land down there. They won the pirate era. It's time to meet the crew. We've got Irving and Barr. These are two sailors who were ex-pirates. One of them had scars all over his face from having pots smashed on it by prostitutes for not paying up. And the other guy, Barr, had a cone-shaped head. Wasn't an alien. He took a sword to the cranium during a swashbuckling battle. And it healed over in a cone shape. Irving and Barr wind up doing most of the deck work. And they were complaining because the endurance is painted all black. It's trying to absorb as much heat as possible. And so all the rope was black as well. So they're trying to hoist the masts all day. And it's rubbing onto their hands. Then they touch their face. And these guys are doing blackface unintentionally. Irvin and Barr are just a couple comic relief characters. Lee was Shackleton's ski guy. He knows if he's going to make it to the bottom, he's got to be proficient in that segment. This homie could swab a deck better than anybody. Gvitkin was one of the last islands they stopped in before the Arctic Circle. They're sailing along as they're meeting each other. It says South Atlantic, Georgia Islands, the Sandwich Islands are down there. Lord Sandwich, that guy discovered Hawaii. He stopped down here in all of these crazy waters. They said when they stopped in Gritkin, the water was tainted red from whale blood. Pretty creepy area. This is where um <laughs> King Kong, that was like Death Island, it took place in the South Atlantic. This is where the... Indian Ocean meets the Pacific Tides that meets the Atlantic and then Southern Arctic Ice. It's a crazy ecosystem. Vritkin, all of these whaling stops they go to are tiny flourishing cities now. And a lot of the guys on board have been around long enough to see them turn into little settlements to multi-generational places surviving off this whale blubber. After they departed from Georgia, one of the southernmost islands, they found a stowaway. William McNish was on board. This guy in the pictures, he only wears skins. Shackleton knew that the guy had a tough reputation. He smuggled on board. Shackleton's too lenient to maybe of a captain. And he's like, you know the rule about stowaways, right? Technically, on an expedition, bruv. If my men are suffering from starvation, we eat you first. A stowaway is considered wet goods. You're allowed to eat them in a time of need. McNish is on thin ice off the bat. With the stowaway, they now have 27 men, 69 dogs, one cat, Chippy, who the book is dedicated to. December 7th, they reached the outskirts of the pack ice, and they left October 26th, a couple months at it, and they're finally at the ice-breaking phase, catching heavy westward winds from the Palmer Peninsula, that's the southernmost tip of America, and that comes up to the Antarctica tail. They almost touch each other. It's a straight where all the winds pass through. They're catching the worst of it. Batten down the hatches. They stuck it through this type of weather on Christmas. And they put a colorful sail up to try to keep morale high. The opposite of the Jolly Roger aesthetic they're always going with. And on January 6th, they encountered their first iceberg. 
pretty wild. Wouldn't you want to see one of these? It's a piece of a glacier floating out. You've seen pictures. It's scary, though. It could flip over at any moment, create an undertow, and you get sucked down with it. It's a hill made of ice, though. Wouldn't you want to climb on one, lick it, drink the water straight from a glacier? Some of these took them off course a few degrees. They don't want to pull a Titanic. And they're far enough south where there's an unshovelable, it's not a word, amount of snow on the deck at all times. They're starting to eat seal live, sealed bacon. <laughs> sealed bacon? Do Bacon is ass meat. Do seals even have butts? They don't have back legs. They're so blubbery, I bet the entire thing is just bacon. They're eating all that crap to try to fatten up. By January 14th, they're getting the dogs ready. They say they have to stretch them out for hours at a time during the day. They're now getting into the hard pack ice. Really crazy terrain. So they're not just pushing aside ice cubes now. This is where you got to catch the wind and create a fissure in the... These are like mile-long sheets of ice. And then it creates a suction which pulls your ship through like you're using scissors and it starts to glide whoa and the scissors start gliding that's when you know it's a good time the endurance will catch a fisher and ride it for a mile just getting sucked through the ice nothing compared to the icebreakers we have now you got to look up the russian ones and you could just tunnel under the ice with the submarines we do mostly the icebreakers have a 12 foot steel hole and they say the noise like the crack is amazing it's a boom every time you hit into the ice <laughs> these guys were doing it with wooden ships ballsy they're at the point of no return you can't just pull a u-turn <laughs> at any moment here they estimate they are 80 miles from vashel bay where they're going to set the ship down for the winter 60 days to catch the right wind they make it they are finally on antarctica some of the men's first time they celebrate playing soccer on the southernmost continent. They carve out a 400-yard waiting pool for the ship as to make sure it doesn't freeze. Brings us to Chapter 3, The Breakup. March started with an average negative 8 degrees Fahrenheit, and they only had two hammers on board to club as much seal meat as they could eat. It's getting into what is fall on the southern hemisphere in March and the ice isn't supposed to change until October their spring people are settling into their bunks they're making mountains of seal meat just going out clubbing for fun it looks like a TGI Fridays on the boat these guys have all their knickknacks there's pictures of Shackleton's the captain's little library he has his typewriter they move the dogs off of the boat into little kennels and they build igloos for the dogs. There were so many. It's like a football field long, 10 by 10, a dog house everywhere that they would call dog loos. The reason they're going hard with all the seals at the club is they have to provide enough meat for all those dogs too. His dogs aren't eating cricket meat. Hurley, the photographer, he would take all these late-night sled rides and bring pictures back of the way the moonlight would reflect off the snow. It looks like a perfect mirror image. 
Shackleton and Hurley, they would play late night chess, sing together to the moon. They had some Caruso and Friday butt buddy vibes. What's the old Navy warning? Uh, ship set sails 100 men and returns 50 couples. Shackleton, his diary is full of notes. He doesn't believe in unnecessary discipline to his men. There is no threat of mutiny down there. No real breakup, as the name of the chapter, between the crew. The diary said that he judged a man by the degree of optimism that he projected. He didn't want to travel around with a doomer. You're going to be in a survival situation. Somebody who's truly pessimistic isn't going to be good for morale. Robert Clark was one of the crewmen that Shackleton would have avoided. He was a good football player, but he had a odd proclivity to dissecting penguins. There's a picture of him in the book, and he had one penguin under each arm like a couple footballs, and they say he would cook them after, so maybe he's not total crazy. Majority of the sailors, they're just waiting for winter to pass so that they could set sail as it gets thinner ice again and breach further into the continent. And a majority of the sailors, they just sleep their time away, try to add to the frozen food piles, go ice fishing. They had cans of Heinz spaghetti, which was the most dense calorie item that they were leaving on the don't eat list. They didn't have MREs back then, 4,000 calorie packets. The highest food was ketchup noodles, Heinz. British people, they love their Heinz. That's their prego. What a sauce boss over here in America. In mid-July, more ice was growing around the base of the ship. That 400-yard waiting pool wasn't enough, and there's nothing you could do at that point. Winter is relentless. They're not going to be able to chip away faster. Shackleton wrote in his book, What the ice gets, the ice keeps. They mostly make it through the winter. August, it's coming to an end, and these ice flowers form as it starts to melt again. They're these little sea flowers that look like carnations, and they go everywhere. you got to look up pictures. I'll add it on the YouTube video. The crew now has 73 dogs. Sally and Samson celebrated spring with four puppies, and the crew is as briny as the ship. They're salty. There's this warmer wind that's coming in it just cakes on the side of the ship it's in bad condition days were on average negative 27 degrees it's a slow motion train wreck as the ice is melting not exactly how they wanted it to happen the ship is starting to keel over and day by day it is one degree off two degrees off three degrees off kind of like an allegory for a bad journey with no destination, like the icebergs, if you turn the ship one degree, you're going to be at a different destination in a while. After a month, the ship is on a 30-degree angle. It's on the cover of the book. October 24th comes around, and the pressure finally broke. The ship didn't level off. The frozen wooden beams started to crack. They said it sounded like a pistol exploding. They still probably had those capped guns with the musket balls. Pa! And then the ship starts flooding with water. 24-7, they break out the pumps, have men trying to salvage it. The endurance was losing life. They couldn't patch the hole as days proceed. Further and further, the ship gets into the ice. Shackleton wrote to a sailor 
A ship is more than his floating home. The ship was losing her sentience. Chapter 4, Patience Camp. The boys started 350 miles from the nearest land. And they're saying, we can't sail home. Why would we try to make it all the way across Antarctica right now? We are fighting for our lives. It's like the moment when you realize, yeah, you did lose your wallet. Or you see a car speeding and you're like, that motherfucker's about to get into an accidente. And then it happens. It's just that gross, I don't know, fear takes over. It's not a good feeling. These guys know now. The gauge has switched. The fun times are over. They're pitching their tents out on the ice. They have no ship to sleep on, no TGI Fridays to celebrate anymore. They only had enough sleeping bags for half of the men. The ground sheets weren't waterproof, so they're just getting wet. A lot of them, they said, had wool clothes back then, though, which is the OG dry wicking material. Upper-class sailors were permitted to drink milk, as a tradition, Shackleton, he, again, wasn't a disciplinarian. He would give everybody a ration of milk to try to keep spirits up. He wants no pessimists. The banjo guy stopped playing. He was complaining his fingers were growing numb, so Shackleton learned some basic chords, and he started singing old hymnals that he remembered. Early November... Shackleton said that they're going to have to send out a pioneering party to Robertson Island, 400 miles of melting ice away. They're not going to try to sail it. And he gives the forward operating party all of their valuables. These guys had nothing. Take my silverware. And they shoot the four puppies. It's just going to be dead weight along the journey. Four more mouths to feed. The first day, the search party made it one mile. It was particularly warm, which made the snow sticky. And they're thinking, all right, we'll try again tomorrow. Doesn't work. Try again the next day. They are only three miles away. One guy goes for a walk one day, and he's like, are you? This is the pioneering team, right? You're not going to. What happened? (laughs) This is not going to be an option. Shackleton calls them back. They have all 27 men at patience camp. And Shackleton is going, all right, for a week, we're going to sit it out, and hopefully someone will come by. <laughs> Everyone's like, what? They get in a routine. They're having breakfast, 8.30 every day, a bannock, which is this little ball of baked dough stuffed with fried seal. They're still revving up the fryers, even though they're about to die. That sounds like a really good meal. I would eat a bannock. Their chores were done by 1 p.m., and then they would break down into their tent squads, five tents by five men. They would take turns hunting, and then just some shooting the ship. At least that's enough people to not go crazy. We're going to read Unbroken in the future. This one's about three men on a life raft for 40 days. (laughs) They got a pretty big squad here. For dinner, they would often have hoosh, which is penguin stew, most common dinner day in day out i wonder if you can find a way to ferment it and get drunk hoosh on the hoosh shackleton was saying a month or two they wound up keeping in this routine just him thinking of ideas (laughs) complete survival mode this is the thing watch like naked and afraid they have to decide whether or not to expend energy and try to move or stay and wait for a search party to come across that's the biggest decision when you're in one of these survival things. And 
mid-November there, drifting far northeast. So they're like, all right, let's cut off a piece of ice. We're going to Coca-Cola bear on an ice cube and try to take off. And these guys have been in the Arctic Circle for long enough. They know how long that ice lasts for. They chip off like a mile sector that they start floating northeast, hoping to hit these Paulette Islands. This goes on until mid-December, and they celebrate Christmas again. Remember how bad they thought it was sailing through the rough waters last Christmas? They put up the red and green mast. This Christmas, they don't know whether or not they're ever going to see their families again. So Shackleton, he ups the bannock allowance. Everybody's eating, trying to stay happy. They have a sufficient amount of food. They're fishing still. He approves 18 men to move on with a lifeboat. And this is another one of their failed plans. He's still giving everybody hope. They wound up having zero energy to row the boats. So they realize they're going to have to eat some more seal bacon and fatten up before making a dash. It's a hard time keeping people unified. They made an entire tent out of the men that snored. And on one of those days, the ice did actually break under that tent. And Shackleton, he heard the men screaming. He pulled the guy out of the ice in his sleeping bag. Imagine being in a sleeping bag underwater. That's a nightmare. Like a, you can't even tread water, kick your feet because you're stuck. You would have to do the dolphin where you just shake your whole body in a wave to keep afloat. The real scary part here is when you fall to a fissure of an ice sheet. They call them ice flows. Those things slam back together, so you might get unlucky and dive under, and it never opens back up for you to surface, or you get smashed in between the ice, and Shackleton pulls him up within a contair. He's able to save the guy. April 7th, he's like, we're going to have to make a go for Elephant Island before more people start falling through the cracks. April 9th, they eat seal and penguin steaks, some seagull liver. (laughs) A hearty meal before loading onto the lifeboats. Men were trapped on the ice there for 15 months. (laughs) Their ordeal has only just begun. Chapter 5, Into the Boats. The men, they hopped on a small 100 by 200 meter ice flow that was drifting towards shore. And so when the night comes, they're going to ice pick onto this little square of ice. And Shackleton wrote, At midnight, there was a feeling of unease as men started to hear the ice crack underneath them. (laughs) It took two hours to get over the shoreside swells, and the men, they kept digging, paddling to shore, and six hours they went without making any progress. So they're kind of up to the will of the waves. A few days goes by like this. Nobody's getting good sleep on the boats. Shackleton's diary wrote, well, at least we could tell some men are by the amount of snoring that is still happening. (laughs) In the morning, a lot of the guys' mouths would be swollen shut from that icy wind. They start getting icicles growing out of their nostrils, and it would hurt to break, they would say, so they would just let them grow. There are pictures of guys, it looks like a cartoon, two long-ass icicles growing out of their nose. They said one guy's eyes iced shut. (laughs) I haven't seen Game of Thrones, but who's that guy's, uh, the character whose mouth looks like a butthole? They said the corners of their mouths were crusty. You want to be an adventurer? This is one of the prices to pay. These guys start throwing their aluminum 
steel cooking pans over the side of um, the ship to make it lighter, to paddle less weight. Shackleton was staying sharp. He has these management skills. The sailors, they usually act negligent to avoid work. Oh, I'm just going to keep rubbing this one spot so I don't have to do something else. And he noticed the men were asking him if they could do anything to help. They've been so demoralized that they are asking for more homework. Shackleton wrote, at this point, he could have told who would have died left to their own wits. After almost a week in the boats with 26 men, they make it to shore, and he knows that's not going to be an option to sailing with those many men for any extended period of time. So Shackleton told them to like set up camp, but this was a big moment when they finally hit ground for the first time after 15 months on ice. He said some of the men celebrated as if they finally saw their family again. They were just shouting, we made it, we're alive, even though they're only like halfway. Some people had a temporary aberration, he called it, a dark transfiguration. They were aimlessly walking around with like shell shock. They're like, oh my god, I didn't think we'd ever get this far. Remember Saving Private Ryan? The guy is, where's my arm? Have you seen it? other guys putting his guts in this is the scene that he's painting a lot of the guys have frostbite on their feet still they had to pull the boats onto shore too so they knew they were gonna have to get it Shackleton isn't one to sit in the boats mush pull me faster he got in there sat with their toes around the fire that night Shackleton is like we're gonna have to set sail with six of my choice of men are going to try to go out and find people to come back and get the other 20 of you. And they pack a lifeboat full of 1,500 pounds of supplies. They fill blubber and tie it to the side of the hull to make sure it doesn't capsize. They got two barrels of melted ice water, 300 food rations, 200 nut rations. Shackleton takes his double-barrel shotgun, knowing this is an all-or-nothing search. Shackleton gave a legendary no-turning-back speech. The entire crew gave Shackleton a bunch of uh, cheers as they set off. Hurley was left on Elephant Island with the crew. This is like Patience Camp 2.0. Hurley took a picture, famous one of them setting sail for help. Chapter 6, Voyage of the Cared. Shackleton wrote, in his diary to summit, he wasn't writing every day. These guys were in true survival situation, the top six men. The following 16 days is one of supreme strife in heavy waters. Their diet was mostly protein bricks, lard, and oatmeal. No hot meals. That's a big thing in, who is it, Les Stroud? Survivor, man? He goes, a hot meal will bring you a long way. Your spirits are going to carry you more than your body can. And Les is always trying to cook up some squirrel meat. Nothing for the lads here. Shackleton wrote that this crew worked as a well-oiled machine. They did a shift of three men above deck, three men below deck. And it is a tiny lifeboat. They're getting absolutely no sleep. The men would all say it felt like they were drowning when they were under the deck. And they felt like there was coldness permeating through the bottom of the boat. And later on, they pulled the lifeboat out of the water and there were two inches of ice on the bottom of the lifeboat. These things weren't conditioned to be in the water that long. They were floating inside of an ice cube. 
on the fourth day, they sailed nearly 128 miles, and they saw Georgia on the horizon. Georgia is like bigger than an island. This isn't a failed vote counting state. This place is crazy. You have to see the pictures of it. Again, on the YouTube, it's giant islandous islands, snow-capped mountains, elephant seals, those ones with the scrotums on their mouth. Or, or, gotta do the noise. <laughs> Shackleton personally thanked McNish for his navigation skills here. He was realizing how much navigation truly is a shot in the dark. They have tiny sextons and the stars to go off to ride the waves. These guys are legends. And McNish was the stowaway in his polar bear hide. If Shackleton let, didn't let him on board, he probably wouldn't have made it this far. Every little point previously is coming back to help. They make it to South Georgia Island. They did 150 miles just floating around the side of the island again like the crew did before. I don't know why that's the hardest part. You remember Castaway, though? You get caught in those... I know nothing about currents. <laughs> there are all these whaling stations that are out of range from South Georgia, but a lot of times, like the Endurance did on the way down to the Arctic Circle, these boats stop at Georgia. So they're going to have to try to get to a port that is stopped for refueling. They passed the notorious jagged reefs of South Georgia Island, classic adventure tale. They went through the candy cane forest. They celebrated with a four-seal dinner. There's no way six men could eat four seals, <laughs> unless it's on top of a Domino's pizza. The new seals are. The guys were kissing the ground. No one was walking around guts strewn about style. They singed and danced, celebrating that they did make it a leg further in their journey. Second to last chapter, this is South Georgia Island. The first night at South Georgia, the men were too weak even to pull the carrot out of the water. Got a, enough adrenaline though to dance, of course. They found a cave to inhabit, and they took turns making sure the boat didn't drift away. They said they were totally demoralized here by sleeping with the rats would crawl across them. I saw one time a homeless guy under an interpass definitely tarred out. He probably would have woken up because there were rats crawling on him. One of them went all the way down his leg. I will never forget this scene. That would <laughs> You would have to be on heroin to survive that without any PTSD. These guys try to recuperate some of their strength. They find their way down to Stromness Bay, which is an interior island. So this Georgia has like water inside of the island that has an island inside of the water. I got a boat in my pool with a pool on my boat. It's been six weeks since they left the men on Elephant Island. And the first real feeling of stretching their legs is kicking in. They have land to walk about on, not just floating ice. They're walking between crags, giant juts of ice up into the air looks like mars but made out of ice it seems like no one's been here for a long time that thing about stromness bay is that it was a ship graveyard and they're like i don't know if a hundred years ago or ten thousand years ago people were living here but there definitely was people here and they wander all the way up onto a glacier <laughs> i don't know how you do this on accident but they have a good point of view and they need to find their way down 
to main Stromness Bay because they think this is a good chance a boat will come by. They're on top of a friggin' glacier. I saw a Bear Grylls episode once, Man vs. Wild. It might just be a dude thing, but these shows are ultimate satisfying. I've seen Bear Grylls float across miles of water, inflating his pants as a life preserver. I have seen Bear Grylls bite into a fish raw. I've seen him drink gallons of his own piss. This guy one time took the inside of a glacier down like a fucking slide at a water park. He is fearless. <laughs> I read a John Krakauer book and he talks about Mount Everest, all of the inside glaciers and crevices. They're loud. There's water gushing through it. It sounds like the heart, the veins of Mount Everest. These guys have to try to find their way down. I don't suggest you made it this far. You just start sending it into random crevices like Bear Grylls. <laughs> the A-team spends a couple nights on the glacier, have their last oil for breakfast, hot breakfast, oatmeal, just with fat, large, scooped in. It re-energized them. On the same day, they see what looks like -da -da, a whaling boat out on the horizon doing circles and they start waving their arms hey over here they don't have any oil left to start a fire and luckily the whaling boat it gets closer and closer McNish he wrote in his diary I never thought I'd have a true battle for my life I'm empowered having won the whaling boat they finally come it's just a couple Eskimos and their kids and they start laughing at the seven men how dirty they are. The Eskimo sailors, they're drunk. They're like, I've never heard a better story of survival. These guys spilled their guts to them. They take them to Punta Irenes civilization. And the seven men, they get all showered up. They go to the spa before they go back to save the guys on Elephant Island. <laughs> Shackleton, that's going to be his reward bringing a ship back acting like the big dick hero saving his men i didn't forget about you <laughs> it was his uh call to do that initial rescue party the pioneering and it paid off shackleton he's gone this isn't without a price i'm gonna remember that forever and he's looking in the mirror all of his beard his hair has gone gray <laughs> quite a bit stressful being in that situation every single day you wake up you don't know if you make the decision that's going to end your life or have made it saved. Some people like McNish feel empowered by this. Some people like Shackleton just want to go live on a farm with their dogs. I was going to say Beagle, and now I'm starting to think Charles Darwin's ship was named the Beagle. Chapter 8, final chapter, Elephant Island. They get back to the 20 men that they had left now for a couple months and these guys have gone completely feral. These were the dudes that really couldn't hold themselves on the survival expedition. And he's like, they have turned into Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Hurley was the one who kept his head on his shoulders the best. He was the one taking pictures. I never watched Lost, but maybe that character Hurley was based off of that. Hurley did get pretty lucky here. These men, they made a roof new makeshift tents out of their lifeboats and 10 of the guys were like fuck that i'm getting comfortable they tunnel into an ice wall and they made an advanced dwelling they looked like cliffside mesas 
if everyone went into the ice cave, then it could have collapsed on them and that would have been a wrap. So only 10 of them they would allow in at a time. <laughs> All of the men, they were weaker than ever, but they made it into a, uh, they had a ventilation system. Again, like those Indian guys on YouTube. They made blubber lamps out of sardine tins, chimney stacks coming out of the ice. There's a really famous picture they took of the men that were stranded on Elephant Island and all their clothes were black. How do you even get dirty on Antarctica? There isn't any dirt. All their diaries talked about wishing that they had a camera for all of the sunsets. And they, of course, ran out of film at a certain point or Hurley rationed it for a couple photos at the end. These guys, they survived by writing cookbooks with imaginary meals in it that never included hooch or blubber. They came up with a singing competition to pass the time. Antarctican Idol. <laughs> they had harmonizing was a good way to survive. <laughs> that thing together. They should have carved an amphitheater into the ice. That would have helped morale. Of course, when Shackleton landed, they had a big feast to celebrate. They played soccer again to celebrate that they had made it. Shackleton wrote very poorly of their dwelling. He went into the ice cave and was like, there was a sump hole that they had accumulated 80 gallons of urine in. Bear Grylls mouth waters. And he said they were pooping into the sump hole too, which is quite satisfying if I do say so myself. Sir Ernest Poopington, if you poop onto ice, it would melt the ice. <laughs> These guys were just experimenting, trying to pass the time. He couldn't tell the difference in the smell because he said their sleeping bags were covered in guano. Bats from the local caves flew into their ice cave too and pooped on them in their sleep. They just got as demoralized as Batman sleeping with the bats. The bigger rescue ship was a few weeks behind so they celebrate with Shackleton for quite a while. The men cried when the ship arrived. They left a yacht club flag they had fashioned on Elephant Island. I think there's pictures to this day. There's a plaque there. Shackleton described the noise as the realest cheers he had ever heard as the rescue ship. <laughs> Imagine the rescue ship sinks. They're all happy. Most men couldn't wait to erase the memory of the island from their past. And Shackleton wrote in his book, as those noble peaks faded away in the mist, I couldn't scarce repress feelings to leave forever in the land that has raised on us bounty and been our salvation. So of course he's going to have some PTSD. He's shell-shocked, but he's going, I'm going to low-key miss the dynamic of every day having nothing to worry about but my survival. Guys that go to war say it's the most alive they will ever feel. It's a band of brotherhood and... Shackleton, he took McNish, gave him the adventure of his life. He made it to hell and back, didn't leave a man behind. An entire crew, he showed the <laughs> gaze of death. This is a story that'll be studied, the survival dynamics for hundreds of years to come. It is over 100 years old, probably in 2100. There will be a holographic VR if you're allowed to go to Antarctica, and then you'll be able to see Shackleton's men harmonizing in the ice wall, huffing, doing jankum out of the sump hole. <laughs> Shackleton, I didn't forget that you shot four innocent puppies. That is the endurance. <laughs>
Thank you, Caroline Alexander, for presenting that book. A Story of Survival is going to kick off some of our ones for the future, and it has gotten us a week further through the cold, dark winter (laughs) next week. We are coming up on uh, Valentine's Day, so I figured we'd do a little foreplay. We have got more sex is safer sex. This economist, he is taking a really big swing. He's trying to numerically prove how birth control has destroyed herd immunity. And I know this is a touchy topic. Hopefully I don't get flagged for using that phrase. But the definition for this has changed within the past year. He's talking about sexual selection. And it has never been this picky before. With our dating apps, you have a million choices in your pocket, but you wind up going with nobody. He says it's leading to less genetic crossover. As a species that thrives on diversity, we have become more chaste, even though the media will let you believe that we're the most diverse and inclusive of any situation ever. And we are not chimpanzees who go to war and sling poop at each other. We do it proverbially on Twitter with our big wit. We share more DNA with bonobos who have sex as a greeting. This is, we have been castrated as a culture. We are getting into the throes of the sheets in the bedroom next week. More sex is safer sex. I want to thank Caroline Alexander again for endurance. It has been a fun time. I will see you guys next week. My name is Nick Muniz. Later.